Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. I'm B.A. Parker. I'm Lori Lizarraga. And you're listening to Code Switch. So, Lori, <laughs> you and I were talking the other day, and what we basically realized was... That we need help? I mean, yes, that we need help. <laughs> okay, not just help generally, though we probably need that too. Well, yeah. Parker, I think that that's probably right. But in this case, for the purposes of this conversation, we need a very specific kind of help with books. Okay, let me set the scene. Um, So earlier this month, Lori and I started rattling off the books we have on our desks right now. As one does. And what we realized is our reading lists are decidedly um, (laughs) unsummary, like... Like, heavy. Yeah. So when I think summer reading, I'm laying horizontal. There's a beach. Maybe there's even a Mai Tai. Mm. What book is the girl in that scene reading? Gone Girl, perhaps. Or Seven Days in June, probably, right? Not insert book title here because we don't want y'all coming for us. (laughs) But when we started talking about what we've actually been reading this summer... Between us, there was a lot of very heavy, very dense, often very depressing literature. And, you know, don't get it twisted at all. These are all really important, super meaningful reads that we'll probably talk about in the fall when we're ready for some serious, scholarly, investigative works. But right now, the sun is shining most days, the nights are warm all nights, the good times are rolling more or less. So we need at least one book or two to meet the moment. It's like this montage from a rom-com. Jealousy, revenge, rage, and a murder most foul. Drama, I know. Romantic tension, thrilling, fear, babies. So today on the show, members of the Code Switch team are going to join us with recommendations of some of their favorite books this summer. And I'm going to be honest, Parker, given the state of our shelves, I really did not have all that high of hopes for the Venn diagram of books doing really entertaining adventure or humor or, dare I say, romance, as well as really valuable race content at the same time. But I was super wrong. And I never say that. That's true. Which brings us to our first selection, a romance novel from Code Switch senior producer, Christina Kala. Hi, Christina. Hey, Lori. Okay, Christina, you're currently our resident Code Switch romance aficionado. Yeah, I got into my first romance novel and I, like, have not turned back. I'm averaging right now, like, two to three days per romance novel. (laughs) I read them so much. It's very fun. It's addictive. There's romance. There's tension. There's, you know, steamy stuff going on. But on top of that, there's also always some nugget that I find when I'm reading a book that feels like just this little looking glass into why humans are the way we are. I love that. And, you know, what we can learn or how we can be better communicators. So which steamy romance did you bring us today, Christina? It's called After Hours on Milagro Street, and it's by Angelina Mm. M. Lopez. And the reason I picked it up was because I was like, Latina author, 
Latino characters. I'm so excited. Totally. Um, but there's so much more to it than that. So we're in the town of Freedom, Kansas. Um, wow. Small town. Okay. Totally unexpected. <laughs> right? Was not expecting Kansas. Keep going. Well, uh, I'm going to tell you why you should have. There's like an incredibly long history of Latinos in Kansas. Mexicans have been in Kansas since before it was even a state. Dang. We're out here, though. This This doesn't shock me, but I didn't know this at all. And it's actually one of five states outside of the Southwest that has more than 1% of Mexican-Americans. So, like, you might not think of Mexicans in Kansas, but let me tell you, they're there, and they've been there for a really long time. And Angelina Lopez is really writing about this from experience, because she's third gen from Southeast Kansas, and a big portion of the migration of Mexicans to this region was actually because they were working on the railroads after the Chinese Exclusion Act. So they were the people who came in and finished that work when the U.S. government was like, no, we don't want any more Chinese people in our country. Okay, so now I understand why we're in Kansas. Um, But what else is actually even going on there, Christina? I mean, who who are our characters? Our main character, her name is Alex, um, Alejandra Torres. Mm. She has tattoos. She has an undercut. She's just like a really cool girl. Vamos. Okay. Uh She's coming back home to freedom from Chicago because there was a fiery firing. She was fired in a way that went viral on video. She was cussing. There was middle fingers thrown around. Oh my gosh. First night in town, she comes into her grandma's restaurant. It's called Loretta's. And there's like some boarding rooms upstairs. And she meets this very sexy professor. He's like a nerdy white guy who is, like he goes to the gym. His name is Jeremiah Post. He comes downstairs with his tortoiseshell glasses on. Who is in the bar. He lives there. What? I should say it's It's after hours. It's like the bar is closed. The professor comes downstairs from the rooms, and they meet, and they hook up right away. (laughs) But, you know, she's not just here to have fun. She's here to work. So the next day, she has a meeting with all the women in her family. They sort of put the plan for that they want to buy Loretta's. This is like a big thing for her. Like, this is how she's going to remake her name. She's staking her future, her reputation on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And her grandma's like, look, I love you, but... I have some other offers. Oh, dang. Drama. I know. So we have Alex, who has kind of been put forward as, like, this bad girl, right? And then we have Jeremiah, who's, like, this very, like, sweet, kind of soft, sensitive dude who's also very muscly and, you know, learned history professor. And he also puts a bit up for Loretta's. Drama. Yeah. So... She's here to, like, get her reputation back. She's here to, like, take over her family legacy. And it's not a given that she's going to get to have that. So Wait, why is her abuela, like, turning on her like this? This is shady. I, you're going to have to read the book to find out. Because it's <laughs> okay. not as shady as you think. Like, okay. I think, okay, okay. you know, there's reasons. I think she's been hurt. I think she's like, why do you actually want this? Like, are you actually moving back? Abuela's been burnt before. Okay, okay. But, yeah, so, like, this is the other sort of central drama that we have. Um... There's this wealthy white family that has a lot of history in the town as well, and they want to buy the land. So very quickly, these two people who kind of run into each other, who could have maybe been, you know, having some fun times upstairs. Could have maybe. um, And then very quickly become enemies who, you know, have conflicting goals. Layers of tension. Mm -hmm. Layers of tension. And then find that they kind of have to work together. Um, against the sort of big bad, which is 
the developer gentrification. I genuinely want to read this. I'm also just like not convinced about this interracial um, hookup, but that's <gasps> me not? being that's me being prejudiced. I don't know. Oh my god, Lori. I'm acknowledging that I don't know if I want her to be dating this guy who's trying to buy the bar out from under her and him being a professor with tortoise shell glasses is making me judge him a little. She wasn't around and he was. Like, My she God, was around him. for this family and she was not around. You love him. So, well, yeah, she has her own, like, change of heart here where she's like, Oof. she has these, like, preconceived notions and she's like, why are you trying to steal this place? And then her family's like, well, he's the one that was there when Abuelita fell and had her accident. Like, Zane, if he wasn't no. there, like, they wouldn't have don't Abuelita tell anymore. tell me that. Oh, man. I'm sorry. Spoiler. But, like. Oh, man. Jeremiah. Don't Pose, hate, Lori. Please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I came on strong. <laughs> no, but I think, like, it kind of makes sense that you would come on strong because he is this white guy who's, like, saying... Like, I'm, I want to be part of this family. Like, this is a place for me. Like, I care a lot about this. And, and she comes in and is like, when he says he wants to buy the bar, she's like, is this going to help you get tenure? Is that why you want to be here? (gasps) And he's like, well, it is going to help me get tenure, but like, that's not all the only thing. So like all of those things that you're feeling are like totally legit. And it was through reading this novel, this romance novel, full of like tension of like sexy scenes and ghosts and mystery that I learned this like really fascinating history. Wow, that is really, really cool. Thank you so much for your recommendation, Christina. You're welcome, Lori. Okay, girl, get out of here. Ciao, Nana. Okay, so we're about to make a very hard pivot from the romantic bar war in Kansas to a book that is, we'll say, the opposite of heartwarming. Okay. What's the opposite of heartwarming? Like, brain melting? Maybe blood curdling? (laughs) I think we need to hear more about the book to know the proper body metaphor to use here. So... Let's have the next guest come through, our senior editor, Leah Danella. All right, Leah. Hi. Hi, Parker. I'm hoping that you will tell me about a book that will uh, compel me not to stress out about my summer reading, as I've already been doing. Oh, I mean, if there's a book for that, this is it. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Okay. So this book is called I'm Not Done With You Yet. And it's by a woman named Jessie Q. Sutanto. Mm -hmm. And Parker, it has everything. It's got obsessive friendships, fabulous wealth, jealousy, revenge, rage, and a murder most foul. Actually, maybe multiple murders most foul. Okay. Okay. (laughs) It was first described to me, I think you'll appreciate this, as a cross between Yellowface and the show You. That speaks my language. All right. Okay. I thought it would. Basically, it's about this woman named Jane who goes to grad school at Oxford when she's a young adult. She's American. Um, And while she's there, she winds up meeting another woman, Talia, and becomes utterly obsessed with her. Wants to spend, yes, all of their time together. Jane wants to be Talia's best friend. She's not sure if she wants to be more than friends. And the book follows this obsession and the things that Jane would do to get and stay close to Talia. Including maybe, possibly, kill? Uh, who knows, Parker? <laughs> no spoilers. 
I mean, that's what we're here for, not for spoilers, <laughs> but for, for, for murder. For murder, exactly. There will be murder, but who does it? You know? Okay. But tell me more about Jane. Like, what's her deal? Why is she so obsessed with Talia? Great question. Um, okay, so very early on in the book, we learn that Jane is a self-diagnosed sociopath. And it's kind of one of the earliest things that, like, as a child, she identifies. And she has all of these preconceptions about herself that she really struggles with. I actually got to talk to the author, Jesse Sutanto, about how Jane has been perceived by early readers of the book. My friend who recently read it, she's like, oh my God, I relate so hard to Jane. And I'm like, which part? The part where she fantasizes about killing her husband? Or I mean, I, I get it, but like... <laughs> I'm trying to think of the right word for it because it's very popular. Mm. Um, the unsympathetic female lead mm-hmm. that's really appealing, like like a Gone Girl or like just unsympathetic, I'm going to take what's mine now kind of lady. And you know what? That is what the summer is about. It is. And Jane is an interesting version of it because like, I feel like the Gone Girl woman is very, like, confident, calculating, always ahead of things. And mm-hmm. Jane is kind of, like, a different version. She's, like, always anxious, second-guessing herself, nervous, like, the <laughs> the everyman's. <laughs> uh, the everyman sociopath. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but what did people find relatable about her? Well, this is actually where I think things get, like, especially code-switchy. Um uh-huh. Because, you know, as I said, Jane is a self-diagnosed sociopath. And, you know, she made that assessment when she was pretty young using, like, online personality tests or, like, reading books about sociopaths. But pretty quickly as I was reading the book, I was like, wait, this is not sociopath behavior. She is not a sociopath. She's just someone dealing with a lot of anxiety and also some deeply internalized white supremacy. Okay, say more. Yeah. Okay. So, so Jane is biracial. Her mom is Chinese American. Her dad is white, but he's not around for her childhood. So Jane grows up just with her mom in a very working class family. And growing up, Jane always feels like she's different from the people around her and how she communicates and processes things. And she's constantly trying to develop some sort of explanation for that. Mm -hmm. So one of the things she comes up with is her race. Her mom is constantly saying things about how Jane needs to stop, like, pursuing white people dreams so jane kind of internalizes the idea that there's some conflict there mm-hmm. but then next to that she also has a lot of anxiety and a lot of anger at her circumstances a lot of rage and again she interprets those feelings as elements of being a sociopath mm-hmm. so then when she gets to grad school as a young adult she meets this beautiful seemingly kind perfect white woman talia oh, and she kind of develops this idea that talia is everything that she's not and never could be so Jane isn't a sociopath. She's just a multiracial girl who's <laughs> trying to assimilate. Okay, and just to be clear, like, as a a multiracial girl who had some <laughs> identity questions as I was growing up, Fair. I want to say, like, I know this is a caricature of a lot of things. Like, it's kind of, like, teasing out some tropes of the, like, violent, confused multiracial person and the book is very obviously like playing with those things and not Mm -hmm. being like oh yes this is what happens when people are uh 
multiracial. So if you're hearing this and you're like, that sounds messed up, it is, but in a way that I think is very purposeful. All right. I mean, Jane's just trying to figure some things out and people just happen to be the collateral damage of her trying to figure those things out, I guess. Yeah. And and just to be clear, this is all like within the first 20 pages of the book. We're, we're, we're very early on still. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wait, so what happens? Where does the murder come in? <laughs> okay, I, I don't want to give too much away, but what I will say is that while internalized racism is causing Jane to feel like she's a monster, there's maybe a little bit of the opposite thing happening with some of the other characters, as in their wealth, whiteness, different types of privilege are kind of preventing them from seeing some of the monstrous ways that they're behaving. Okay, here, this description. It is giving single white female in the best possible way. (laughs) And I can get into that. Yeah, it's also got a little bit of a, like, get out vibe to me. But, like, if you are the problem that you're running from, That's a perfect description. (laughs) Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you, Parker. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up, we're going from distinctly grown-up books to something a bit less mature. You guys excited? Yeah. We're going to read some books? Yeah. Yeah. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Parker. Lori. Code Switch. And we're back talking about books to read this summer that won't feel like homework. Next up, we have a pick from Code Switch supervising editor Dahlia Mortada. It's a memoir about a lot of things, but top line, it's a story about finding yourself. I love a memoir. It's the perfect way to be nosy because it's from the person willing to share their business. (laughs) Exactly. Hi, Dahlia. Hi. So you're bringing us a book called Hijab Butch Blues. Why are you recommending this book, Dahlia, for our summer reads list? Well, first, let me say the title Hijab Butch Blues is actually a nod to a cornerstone novel about life as a butch lesbian called Stone Butch Blues. 
But this is actually a memoir. The author is Lemia H., who is a South Asian, queer, devout Muslim immigrant whose pronouns are she, they. And she grew up in the Arabian Gulf, where queerness, in her words, isn't an identity. Oh, gosh. Is that why Lemia uses an initial? Yeah, she actually publishes semi-anonymously. And that's in part because her parents still live in the Arabian Gulf. And yeah, queerness is a crime in a lot of places there. She starts the book in the country where she grew up, uh, a rightfully angsty teen who feels lost and unseen and just wants to disappear. And one day she's in her Quranic study class and Lemia hears the story of Maryam. Maryam is the Arabic name for Mary, you know, the mother of Jesus. Ah, yes. I'm familiar with her. (laughs) Okay, so in the story that Lemia shares, Maryam is talking to God and she's like, How can I be carrying a baby? I've never been touched by a man. Uh, And a light bulb turns on for Lemia, and she raises her hand in school, and she's like, hey, um, has Medium never been touched by a man because she doesn't like men? Oh. Yeah. Um, It's this awesome moment. Um, And even though, you know, her teacher didn't support Lemia's theory that Medium was gay, um, she suddenly feels so seen and comforted by Medium, by Islam, and she really carries that connection to her religion throughout her life and throughout her book. I love that so much. She interprets the stories and takes what she needs. Absolutely. Um, And yeah, I mean, like, she is so devoted to her religion. She actually even organizes the entire book this way. Each chapter is named after a prophet or a really important religious figure in Islam. And then within the chapters, she formulates stories that are inspired by the anecdote about that religious figure. So the first chapter is called Maryam. That's sort of when she's realizing that she's gay. There's a chapter that's called Allah, and that goes through all of the Islamic names. There are 99 names for God in Islam, and it goes through those names and how in Arabic, the names for God are both feminine and masculine. And that's kind of Lemya's realization that she's genderqueer, that she identifies as both feminine and masculine, as both or neither. Wow. She really approaches it like a scholar, where she like really dissects the texts and the stories and uses what she finds not only for her personal journey, but for her political journey, for her social journey, for all of it. I grew up in a Muslim household. I read a lot of these stories growing up. And for most of my adult life, I felt kind of distant from it. I didn't read the stories in the way that she's reading them. I didn't draw inspiration um, the way that she is. And reading how she interprets these religious stories through a really inclusive and like loving lens like makes me reconsider the way that I think about specifically being a Muslim person. Wow, that's so, so beautiful. You mentioned that this is sort of like a book of essays. So this isn't like, you know, you read it from chapter one forward and you get a journey that is linear on a timeline. Not at all. But you definitely see Lemia grow throughout the whole book. As she gets more comfortable with um, her real self, as she gets older, she tells the story of the time she faked being sick over the Eid holiday to get out of hanging out with her uncle's family in upstate New York so that she could actually spend the whole day with a girl that she was hard crushing on from her mosque. And yeah, it's like this montage from a rom-com. They're traipsing through the city. Aww. They eat falafel at a tiny deli. Lemia's crush, you know, takes her to a store and, and tries on a bunch of clothes and gives her a fashion show. Um, and they like giggle over a game of spot the raccoon in the park, um, which is a very particular game. Uh, and then at the end of that seemingly magical day, 
Lemia's love interest checks out a man she says she finds cute, and poor mm. Lemia is totally crushed. Oh my gosh, that's so sad. Yeah. Like, same day, two different perceptions of the rom-com montage that's actually happening, or I guess yeah. not. Totally. You can imagine you just like go home, hide yourself under the cover. I don't know. I have yeah, been brutally sort of like so gut punched like that. <laughs> um, and then in another essay in the same section, she writes about how she falls for straight girls over and over, even though at that point she's well into her journey to being an mm. out queer person in New York. Wow. And she keeps going on dates that aren't really dates. That sounds familiar. Or she goes on really bad dates, like she's yeah. setting herself up for failure. And then one of her good friends finally calls her out for it. And so Lemia writes this line as she realizes this, um, dating queer women will make my gayness real in ways it isn't when I'm crushing on straight girls. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think it's such a universal experience to run away from a deep and honest truth about yourself because mm -hmm. in some ways you're really scared to actually find out what life could look like if you yeah. just accepted it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I thought this book could have been super emotionally heavy and dark and difficult. Um, and it's not like Lemia skates over the tough stuff, but she writes through so many of these insightful and honest moments and delivers them with such lightness and ease. Yeah, it sounds like her writing too is really effective in pulling you in and making you feel all the feelings with her. Totally. Absolutely. Dahlia, thank you so much. It sounds like this is definitely going to be one that I add to my summer reading list. Of course, I'll send you my copy. Now, Parker, as I understand it, when we started talking about this episode, it actually inspired you to pick back up a book you started reading earlier in the summer. It's true. I started reading a book a couple months ago that I was really enjoying, but I had to put it down because I was getting inundated with all of these other books about, like, mass incarceration, and mm. why our immigration system is broken beyond repair. But True. because of this episode, I decided to make time for it again. Excellent. Okay, so what's the book and what made it worth, like, you know, coming back to, Parker? So I've been reading The Late Americans. It's by the author Brandon Taylor, someone I've been a fan of, especially his short story collection called Filthy Animals. But The Late Americans is this introspective, slightly nihilistic collection of vignettes about queer artists living in Iowa. The first chapter focuses on a queer white male poet named Seamus who feels out of place in his MFA writing program because he isn't overtly marginalized and kind of gets antagonized for it. And then the novel shifts focus onto a queer multiracial couple named Fyodor and Timo that has to confront the financial and ethical divides in their relationship. One guy is working class and has a job at a meat processing plant, while the other is moneyed and vegetarian because of course he is. I still can't get over their names, but yeah, keep going. Everyone has a fantastic name in this book. <laughs> and then the story shifts again to a dancer turned cam guy named Ivan who disregards his boyfriend's blackness because... His boyfriend's a transracial adoptee with money. And it's this tricky labyrinth of race and sexuality and class all within the confines of a Midwestern college town. And I'm realizing as I'm describing it that while it got me out of my reading funk, it wasn't a light read. Like every chapter, I felt both like smart and dumb at the same time. But I was hooked. Parker... <laughs> 
Yes. I'm sorry, but I am not sold at all. And that's okay. I enjoyed it's it. It's not that it doesn't sound good. It's just the brief was light summer reading. And you literally just described this book as neither light nor a summer read. I contain multitudes. It was either this or I finished reading, like, The Artist's Way or the, the essays okay. of E.B. White that are still on my coffee table. Like, what did you want I from me? Just, I will just say it makes so, so, so much more sense what we're doing here now. We're here to help you find some reading that rests your head and your mind and your brain, too, because you need help, Parker. I do. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not good at this. Okay, well, fortunately, I have a book recommendation for you that is like a no-fail place for you to start your summer reading. Hit me with it. So ever since I became Titi Yayi to my nephew Liam two years ago, my baby, I have become like a children's book connoisseur. So now I'm constantly scouting for a children's book in every new place I visit. I'm looking for like interactive books pop-ups, books in Spanish. I'm always on the lookout for his next new favorite. A good TT. <laughs> Thank you, Parker. And all that is to say, the book I have for you is my most recent find for him that I absolutely fell in love with this summer, and I've been sending copies to all the babies I know. You guys excited? Yeah. What, are you going to read some books? Yeah. Yeah. Including one of my best, best friends, Sonia. Not a baby, but she has two babies. Camila is almost two years old, and Noah is three and a half. And that's the three of them reading the book I have for you, Alma, and how she got her name. It's beautiful, heartwarming, and it's only 27 pages, Parker. See, you should have mentioned that earlier. I can do that. Alma. ¿Y cómo obtuvo su nombre? Alma Sofia Esperanza Jose Pura Candela is our character. She's the sweetest little girl wearing pink and white striped leggings and a pink bow in her hair. And by page two, we're in the thick of the plot, Parker. Baby girl has a long name. Too long, if you ask her. It never fits, she says, which is fair. Six names is a lot, especially for a kid. To which her dad responds, let me tell you the story of your name, and then you decide if it fits. So he sits Alma in his lap and introduces her to each of the family members she's named after, right? So her grandmother, Sofia, and her great-grandmother, Esperanza, Pura, her great-aunt, and her dad's dad, Jose. And as her dad explains who each relative is, the pictures bring them to life. There's a book about Peruvian cultures on the bookshelf, a calavera in the background of a portrait— the great-grandmother's tiny little frame with her curly gray hair and glasses. Her grandpa is an artist, and he's painting a family in the Andes Mountains wearing traditional Peruvian ponchos in tejanas. Mira! In this picture, tiene una tejana. Your grandpa, Camis, always wore tejanas. You want to turn the page? Yeah. Okay. There's all these little affectionate details illustrated into every page that really give the story its color. And not with all that much literal color, either. Most of the pictures in the book are actually, like, just penciled sketches in black and white. Pura was your great aunt. She believed that the spirits of your ancestor were always with us, watching over us. When you were born, she tied a red string around your wrist, a charm to keep you safe. <gasps> we do that too, guys. <laughs> we try to keep... Algo rojo siempre para que no te hagan ojo. 
in the page dedicated to Candela, Alma's other grandmother says she always stood up for what was right, which, you know, alone is beautiful. But the illustrations show grandmother Candela with a baby on her hip and like her high heel boots on, and she's participating in a protest. Ella siempre defendió las causas justas. Whether you're reading Alma's story in English or in Spanish, the illustrations don't change, which means all the little notes and labels throughout the book that are in Spanish are there no matter which version you pick up, which I also just love. I love that. That's beautiful. I can't wait to sit my 36-year-old nephew on my knee and read it to him. Parker, I really feel like you're being flippant with my very <laughs> real <laughs> recommendation about the book. Your 36-year-old nephew That's not my is not going to be able— to sit on your lap for this, but you guys should read it side by side because it's a beautiful book. Yes, ma'am. At the very end of the book, Parker, the author shares her inspiration behind the story. Any guesses? Does she have a long name? Yes, Parker. <laughs> should be noted, I was an English professor. What is I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. The roles have reversed in a very extreme and strange way, and I apologize for that. The inspiration for this story is the author's own name. Juana Carlata Martinez Pazarro got stuck with what she thought was the most old-fashioned, harsh, ugly, way too Spanish name in all of Lima, Peru. But later, when she moved to the U.S., it was her name that made her feel unique and served as, you know, this much-needed reminder every day of where she came from and who she came from. Alma Sofia Esperanza Jose Pura Candela. That's my name, and it fits me just right. Do you want me to tell you about mommy's name? Yeah. Mommy's name is Sonia Yvette Gutierrez Orpineda. Uh. Yeah, it's kind of like Alma. It's long. That is so sweet and beautiful, Lori. And that is it like, really that is really sincerely, like, it's really beautiful. <laughs> It really is, Parker. Did you like the book? ¿Te gusta el libro, Camis? Mm. Yeah. Again? Yeah. <laughs> okay, my love. All right, well, Lori, I think we just both got the help we needed. Mostly you. Okay, mostly me. And hopefully <laughs> we helped some other listeners, too. Look at us out here doing the Lord's work for society. I really do have new books on my summer reading list. So if you're still listening, stop listening and go to a local bookstore near you. Are you doing it? You want to help me do these credits first or should I take it from here, Parker? I mean, I guess. (laughs) Well, that's our show. You can follow us on Instagram at mprcodeswitch. If email is more your thing, ours is codeswitch at npr.org. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast on the NPR app or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to also give a quick shout out to our Code Switch Plus listeners. We appreciate you and thank you for being a subscriber. Subscribing to Code Switch Plus means getting to listen to all of our episodes without any sponsor breaks. And it also really helps support our show. So if you love our work, please consider signing up at plus.npr.org slash codeswitch. This episode was produced by Jess Kung. It was edited by Leah Danella. Our engineer was Josh Newell. And a big shout out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive. 
Dahlia Mortada, and Christina Kala, who you heard, and also Verilyn Williams, Courtney Stein, Steve Drummond, and Gene Demby. I'm Lori Lizarraga. And I'm B.A. Parker. Hydrate. Call your dad's dad. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.